Would you take your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 1 this morning? Philippians chapter 1. I often wonder why we as Christians in the United States don't suffer as much as Christians have throughout history. I don't know anyone personally who has been sent to prison for preaching the gospel. I don't know anyone personally who was killed for refusing to recant of his belief in Christ. And I certainly haven't suffered in those ways. And I often wonder why we as Christians in the United States don't suffer as much as Christians in history and also as much as Christians in other parts of the world. Christian historians believe that there have been more people killed in the last 150 years for the sake of Christ than there were in the previous 1,850 years. That is, since the time of Christ. More martyrs in the last 150 years than the previous 1,850 years combined. Does that surprise you? That Christians are suffering around the world as we speak? Could it be that And we don't know about the suffering described in the Bible because maybe we haven't taken a clear enough stand. Could it be that we have cocooned ourselves in our little Christian bubble where we rarely interact with unbelievers? And when we do, we seek political correctness over the stumbling block that is the Gospel. Some of the answer to that question, I think, comes in just the nature of our country right now, where we are, that there is a tolerance level that's kind of broadly uh, that's kind of broadly brushed across our entire country, no matter what we believe, that people are just going to be, well, it's okay. We, we understand. We tolerate what you believe. So I, some of it may not be attributed to us, but perhaps what I'm trying to get us to see is perhaps some of it is, that we haven't taken a clear enough or perhaps we haven't made enough relationships with unbelievers as we should or we haven't spoken out boldly enough. In this passage today, Paul gives a profound command for believers and supports it by showing that suffering will come and when it does, we need to be ready for it. We need to stand together as a church against the attack of the enemy and we need to recognize that God is on our side. Let's read our passage this morning, Philippians 1, 27-30. This is the Word of God. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the Gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the Gospel. In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you, it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in Me, and now here to be in Me. Our passage this morning is a passage that teaches us that we must live as citizens of heaven. We must live as citizens of heaven. The main command in the passage 
is to live as citizens of heaven. Now, we don't see that in our translation, but look at verse 27. I want to show you why I say that. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. The, the reason I say that we ought to live as citizens of heaven is because that word conduct should actually be translated, or I should say would be better translated as live as citizens of heaven. When we think of the phrase conduct yourselves, we think of Ephesians 4.1, and there it says to conduct yourselves or walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. And when it says walk, we understand it means conduct your life in a, a manner that's worthy of the gospel. So we see the same sort of language here, and we might think that it means exactly the same thing. I think it's very similar, but it's got a different nuance. Here, the verb conduct is used only, uh, I think, three other times in the New Testament. And each time it refers to living as a citizen of somewhere, fulfilling your obligation as a citizen. So, we can summarize all of the Christian responsibilities into one phrase, and that is to fulfill our obligations. We must fulfill our obligations as citizens, as Christian citizens. So, what kind of citizenship do Christians possess? Well, we have at least two. I guess we have only two. We are dual citizens. We are citizens of earth. And we're citizens of heaven, right? So the idea here is that while we're citizens of earth, in whatever way that is, whether we're a citizen of the United States or Canada or wherever, we must at the same time live as citizens of heaven. Because that's where our ultimate citizenship lies. So what Paul is saying here, very literally, only live as citizens in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. The word only there, the very first word, Paul is referring back to what has happened to him. In verse 27, he was saying that whether I live or whether I die, God needs to be honored. Uh, actually, that's in verse... Uh, I think it's farther up there. Well, we can we can move on, but it's there. Um, so this command here that Paul is saying, whether I live or whether I die, I'm living as a citizen of heaven. I'm see seeking to honor God. This command is supported and motivated by Paul's own faithfulness in verse 30. He says, I've experienced the same conflict which you saw in me. I'm going through trouble myself. I'm suffering for the sake of my citizenship as well. And so you need to live this way. Whatever happens to me, whether I stay here or I go on to be with God, you need to continue on, is what he's saying to the believers here, you need to continue on as citizens of heaven. Well, what does it mean to live as a citizen of heaven? And I think we could summarize that very simply by looking at the next phrase in verse 27. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. To live as a citizen of heaven means to live worthily of the gospel. It means to living up to the great privilege that we have. This life-changing power that has come to us in the gospel. Living up to that standard, that privilege that we have in, in Ephesians 4 where it says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. 
that that manner of life was one that was humble, gentle, patient, and cooperating with other believers. And so living in a manner that's worthy of the Gospel is simply living a holy and righteous life that is constantly being refined, that is growing. So what does that look like? We're going to see that there are three aspects of this life that is worthy of the Gospel here in this passage. But before we do that, we need to see this next phrase in verse 27. Whether I come and see you or remain absent. Paul's saying, I don't know what's going to happen, what's going to, how my imprisonment's going to turn out, but whatever happens, you need to live a life that's worthy of the Gospel. And here's what it looks like. He gives three aspects of a life that's worthy of the Gospel. First, a life that is worthy of the Gospel pursues unity around the truth of God's Word. End of verse 27. A life that's worthy of the Gospel pursues unity around God's Word. The first aspect of living a life worthy of the Gospel is expressed in two ways. Do you see them in verse 27? What are the two ways that we pursue unity? One is, so that I will hear that you are standing firm. And then the second is just another way of saying it. With one mind striving together for the sake of the Gospel, for the faith of the Gospel. So there are two ways, two positive ways that a person lives out his life in a way that's worthy to the Gospel. Now in verse 28, he's going to show that negatively. Here's what it doesn't look like. It doesn't mean infighting and, and disunity. And we'll talk about that here in just a second. But positive, positively, first in verse 27, he expects them to stand firm in one spirit. Now, the word spirit there is lowercase in the New American Standard. And so that would indicate that it's one purpose, one common idea. One, we all have one spirit together. But, but I think if we look at how that phrase is used throughout the rest of the New Testament, it's used three other times. That is one spirit and it always refers to the Holy Spirit. And, uh, but even if you take it to mean small s spirit, like the New American Standard translators do, the point is still the same. We need to be unified around one common goal as a result of the Spirit, the one Spirit that lives within us, right? We have one common purpose. That is, that we need to, to, to stand firm. This is our goal. Notice verse 27 again, that I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one Spirit. So the first way that we show ourselves as living as citizens of heaven, worthy of the Gospel, is we stand firm together in one Spirit. Apparently, like Paul, these believers are experiencing or will soon experience an attack from the enemy. And what Paul is saying is if you are not standing together, you will fail. Think about it. How effective is a military battalion who has infighting in the middle of the battle that is worried about position and and rank how effective is a football team who is arguing in the middle of a play how effective is a company whose employees are arguing over responsibilities in the middle of a sales pitch you see as a church we're not going to be effective against the attack of satan and his 
and His armies if we're not unified around a common purpose? This idea is further explained in the next phrase. It says, with one mind striving together for the faith of the Gospel. Striving together. Sometimes we overemphasize the idea of of the Christian life as if we or me, I am all that there is to live for. That you personally, individually, are all is all that there is to live for. But 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 we do not fight alone. We strive together. We are like that military battalion that is linking their arms together at the front of the battle. Because we have a common set of beliefs. We recognize the various positions that God has granted to people and we're pursuing greater faith, greater holiness, greater service, and we're guarding ourselves against the error that is attacking us. An organization will endure when it stands united around a common, proper purpose. But it falls very quickly when it is divided. So we as Christians, we as Ambassador Baptist Church, are less vulnerable to the attack of Satan when we stand as one body with one purpose, with with one spirit who lives within each of us, one common belief system. Here's Paul saying the very first way that we show that we're living a life that's worthy of the Gospel is that we pursue greater unity around the truth of God's Word. We don't just pursue unity for the sake of unity. We pursue unity around the truth of God's Word. That is the glue that holds us together. That's the source of our strength. It's the goal that we're reaching for. Secondly, to live a life worthy of the Gospel means to not be swayed by persecution. Verse 28. To live a life worthy of the Gospel means to not be swayed by Persecution. This is what verse 28 is referring to. In no way alarmed by your opponents. Here we see the opposite. First we see the positive way that believers are standing firm in one spirit, striving together. And here's the opposite. Being alarmed by their opponents because they're all going in different directions. They're not unified around the truth of the Gospel. Paul is saying, Don't be intimidated by the enemy. Don't allow them to send you into a panic. Stand up and fight. Now, how's the enemy going to send believers into a panic? Well, we'll see in verse 29 that apparently there is some sort of physical persecution that these believers have faced or will face. And the natural response is to, to be intimidated and to give up. So he says, Don't be alarmed by your opponents. If you're standing together, striving together for the sake of the Gospel, recognize that they are not the ones that you ultimately fear. But God is the one you ultimately fear. You reverence Him and His power and His will more than what they can do to you. Notice the next phrase there in verse 28. Which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. Now this next phrase is a little bit tricky to understand. Does this mean that when the Philippian believers have resolve in the face of attacks, that is, they're not fearful of the attacks, that the people who are attacking them, the opponents, 
will some, si- some way see a sign of their destruction. So does it mean that if there was a, a group that was attacking us as a church, and as they saw our resolve, our striving together, our unity, would that mean that they see some sort of a sign for their destruction? We know that we're going to be destroyed. Is that what it means? I don't think so. A sign was something that was put on display and it was clear and unmistakable. And I can't see how if the Philippians stood firm in their unity that that would somehow confirm in the minds of unbelievers that they were going to be destroyed. Right? Because the nature of sin is that it is deceiving. It is self-deceiving. And they think they're going to win. I would fully expect that they would go to the grave thinking that they had enough to get by, that they weren't going to be destroyed, that they would be somehow accepted before God or that this world just kind of ends. Instead, I follow Walter Hansen in his commentary who paraphrases verse 28 in this way. In no way let your enemies strike terror in you, for although they see your loyalty to the truth as inevitably leading to your persecution and death, you see it as leading through persecution to your salvation of your souls. When unbelievers see our resolve to stand in the face of opposition, they think that it's going to lead to our persecution and our death. But we see it as our very deliverance. Look at the last line of verse 28. But of salvation for you. That is, you see it as a sign of salvation for you and that too from God. While they think that our loyalty to the Gospel is a sure sign that we're going to die as a sign of destruction for us, we see it as a sign of salvation that if we're being persecuted for the sake of Christ, it's not that we're going to be destroyed ultimately, but we will be ultimately saved. You want proof that you are a Christian? Take a look at the harassment you're receiving for the sake of the Gospel. Those who are courageous enough to live or die for the sake of the Gospel give evidence that they have been saved. That's not the only evidence that the Scriptures speak of, but here's one evidence that you can know you're a Christian, that you're receiving persecution, not just for persecution's sake, not because you're a contrarian, you're always playing devil's advocate, but because you are standing for the sake of truth. So those who live a life worthy of the Gospel, they, number one, pursue unity around the truth of God's Word. Number two, they're not swayed by persecution. They recognize that it's actually a sign of deliverance, not destruction. And then number three, they accept God's two gifts. Verses 29 and 30. They accept God's two gifts. And these are amazing when you think about them. God has given us two things. See if you can see them as we read verse 29. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake. So that's why I say it's a gift. It's been granted. What has been granted? Two things. Number one, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. Here's a gift that God gives you. Number one, belief in Him. Have you acknowledged, do you acknowledge that that your saving faith is a gift from God. This is why we can't boast in our salvation. We can't even boast in our faith because Ephesians 1 tells us that we've been chosen by God and we have been called by God. And even the faith that we express is a gift from God. 
In other words, we can't express faith apart from the work of spiritual regeneration. That is, the spiritual impartation of life to us. We can't boast in that. We can't boast in our faith because faith doesn't come apart from the Spirit doing a work in us. So even that is is a gift from God. We were spiritually dead, remember. God's the one who made us alive. And so our faith was just a response. It was like it would be like Lazarus boasting in his standing up and taking the, the grave clothes off. He has no reason to boast. All he did was listen to Jesus say, Lazarus, come forth. He got up. He responded to what Jesus did. That's what our faith is like. It's the getting up. It's not causing the, the coming to life, right? We don't make ourselves come to life. We can't. We're dead. And so even our faith is a gift from God. Here's what God says. It has been granted to you to believe in Him. That faith that you express to come to God, to come to Christ, it's been granted to you for Christ's sake. It is a gift from God. Have you recognized that? The word granted comes from the root word charis, which means grace. Our belief in God, in Christ, is a gift of charis. It's a gift of grace. But I think this is referring more to just our initial act of faith, that at the time of salvation, we express our faith in God, and that's a gift from God. But I think it's referring also to our ongoing faith that goes through from the time of our salvation all the way to the time that we die. It means to believe in Him at first all the way until now. All of that. From the time that you first believed and the time that you have been believing, believing all the way until the time when you no longer will need to believe because you will be seeing by, with your own sight, right? We, we won't walk by faith then. All of that is a gift from God. It's, it's the initial and ongoing faith that God gifts to us. He grants it to us. So that's the first thing that we need to accept if we're going to live a life worthy of the Gospel that God has gifted us the faith that we now uh, express. The second thing that God has gifted, and this, and this one is even more alarming, and that is suffering for Christ's sake. Notice the, the, the language, because what we can think here is that, well, yeah, the belief in Him is a gift, and then He's going on to a new point that sometimes people are going to suffer. But actually, suffering is a gift. Look at verse 29. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only, and then we could say dot, 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 but also to suffer for His sake. We can all agree that part of the grace of God is that He grants us the gift of belief, the gift of faith. But here Paul's talking about more than just the gift of faith. He's talking about the gift of suffering. And the way that he uses this sentence or structures this sentence is he says, not only, but also. So let me just give an example to show that he means both and when he says not only, but also. I could say, for lunch, I'm eating not only pizza, but also breadsticks. Right? And when I say that, I could actually break that sentence up into two sentences and still say the exact same thing or mean the exact same thing. For lunch... I am eating pizza. For lunch, I am also eating breadsticks, right? 
I would be wrong to say, or you would be wrong to, to understand me to say that I'm only eating one of those things. And so here would be a, an appropriate way for us to break down verse 29, or yeah, verse 29, and we could do it into two sentences. First, for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake to believe in Him. We all agree on that one. The second one, the second sentence would be this: for to you it has also been granted to suffer for His sake. Paul's saying not only, but also. These are both gifts from God. And I've got news for you this morning, Christians. The suffering that you now experience, the suffering that you will experience for the sake of Christ is a gift from God. God didn't say to Paul, you know, suffering is just one of the hands that I've dealt you. This is your lot in life, Paul. This is the lot in life for the Philippian believers. No, he essentially say, says, Paul, this is my gift for you to suffer for Christ's sake. Jesus supports this idea. Matthew chapter 5, verse 10 and following, he says, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is in heaven, and it is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who are before you, they also persecute you. Luke records about the apostles in Acts five, forty and forty one. He says they took his advice, that is, these these leaders who were saying, Don't say anything about Christ, you need, you need to be removed. They took his advice and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then released them. So, they went on their way, the disciples went on their way from the presence of the council rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. Jesus says, it is a great blessing for you to suffer for the sake of my name. Don't count it as punishment, don't count it as evil when you suffer for my name. Count it as a privilege. And this is what the disciples did. So we too should not be surprised that a unified stand for the Gospel will often result in persecution. It could be in the form of disapproval by family and friends and neighbors of our church. Maybe in the form of financial penalties or disadvantages. But I think it won't be long that in our country, standing for the sake of Christ will mean physical persecution for many and death for others. And when we see that and experience that and recognize that as suffering for the sake of Christ, it will be great evidence of our final salvation. And, and we can take that as a gift from God that He has granted it to us. The disciples counted it a privilege. And if that's not motivation enough, then look at the example of Paul. Verse 30. He says, Experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, that is, suffering for the sake of Christ, and now here to be in me. So let's think about Paul's life. When did he suffer? When did they know about suffering that took place in Paul's life? Well, Acts chapter 16 is when he first met them. 
and he was taken to prison. He and Silas, remember, were singing in the prison when the jail, the, the bars were open. And the Philippian jailer was about to kill himself, remember, and he led him and his family to Christ. And so they know about the suffering that Paul has, has experienced for the sake of Christ. So he says, you remember how it was with me. But also, the last phrase says, now you hear to be in me. That is, I am currently suffering for the sake of Christ. I am currently imprisoned and being mistreated because of my stand for Christ. Turn over to chapter 3, verse 10. Paul took great pleasure, recognized suffering as a, as a privilege. Paul says that I may know Him, chapter 3, verse 10, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to Him in His death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. It is a great privilege, Paul says, for me to suffer for the sake of Christ. I count it as, as part of my journey. It's a part of me understanding more about Christ. That as I experiencing, experience sufferings that He experienced, I understand more of who Christ is and what He did for me because I'm a sinner saved by grace. Christ was perfect. And yet He suffered. His point is that in verse 30 of chapter 1, that they should allow His example to embolden them to endure suffering for the sake of Christ. In other words, if you need more motivation to suffer and to endure suffering for the sake of Christ, then look at me. Look at the example that I left for you when I was in Philippi and look at the example that I'm leaving for you right now. I have suffered. And what do we find? That despite all of his suffering in the book of Philippians, that he is joyful. Because he recognized that it leads to the greater progress of the Gospel. So the main command here in this passage is to live as citizens of heaven. Conduct yourselves. And the way that we do that is, is by living a life that's worthy of the Gospel. We live a life that's worthy of the Gospel by pursuing unity around the truth of God's Word, by not being swayed by persecution, and then by acknowledging God's two great gifts to us. Belief in Him and suffering for His sake. So in closing, let me leave you with two points of application. Number one, our church must pursue greater unity. Our church must pursue greater unity. We do great damage to the cause of Christ in our area when we walk in disunity. When we are like the military battalion who is constantly fighting with one another on the battlefield because of rank or position or because of what they were, what, what kind of job that they were given to do. We do ourselves a disservice and we do a disservice to the name of Christ when we don't walk in unity. I'm not suggesting that, that, that areas of service are unimportant or that those things don't deserve a time where we can speak about them. But I'm saying that infighting is a tool that is used by our enemy to make us more vulnerable to the ongoing attack. So we need to stand together around a common purpose. What, what is that purpose? We just unify for the sake of unity. We all just kind of agree on whatever someone throws out there. We have lots of responsibilities 
at our church. But I think our common purpose can, can be summed up in a very simple way. It is to glorify God by fulfilling the Great Commission. And what is the Great Commission? What is the commission that Christ has given to the churches, to our church? It is to make disciples of all nations, to baptize them and to teach them. There it is. It's very simple. It is to make disciples of the people in this room right now. The people that are part of our membership. Make disciples of those people. And then to make disciples of the people outside of this room. The people with whom we have contact. Now, obviously, we can't make disciples of unbelievers. We need to see God bring them to Himself first. So that requires on our part, it just assumes that we have to participate in evangelism, right? We need to reach out to people for the sake of Christ so that they too can be made a disciple and be taught all the things that Christ has commanded us. So how should we unify? Unify around our common goal, our common responsibility, which is to make disciples. This is why I think that it is so vital for us as church members and me as your pastor to stay in one church for a very long time. And I'm thankful for many of you members who have been at this church for decades and have have been an example to us as to how to to commit to a body for a very long time. You've seen the ups and downs. You've been with people despite their differences and even their quirks. But I think we do a disservice to ourselves and to the cause of Christ, to our mission when we're bouncing around to different churches. When a pastor bounces around to different churches, the direction of the compass can, has to be reoriented because now he's with a new group and that group had a different emphasis. Now obviously, all the same God. We would probably all say we have the same goal, make disciples, but there's a different emphasis and so it's easy to get off track. The same thing can happen with a church member who bounces around different churches. Various churches have various emphases and and it can be easy, easy for a person to get off track and not to stay on the right track toward a common goal. And so I'd suggest that we need to do something that's very simple to understand but very difficult to carry out. And that is to stand together, that's the unity part, and stand a long time. To stand together and stand long. We, we do that. When we do that, we equip each other for this next responsibility. And that is, number two, stand firm in the face of persecution. Number one, our church must pursue greater unity. Number two, stand firm in the face of persecution. Are you facing some kind of persecution right now? Maybe not the kind that Paul and the Philippians faced, or the kind that Peter and the apostles faced, or the kind that Pastor Saeed is facing right now, and countless uh, countless thousands of others that are facing for the sake of Christ. But maybe you're facing some persecution right now, and it's challenging your resolve, whether or not you should keep going or whether you should give up. I'd encourage you to stand together with other people that have covenanted themselves to you in this body because it is much harder 
and nearly impossible to stand alone. If you're facing persecution, think with an eternal perspective. You are a citizenship, a citizen of heaven, so live as a citizen of heaven. Your primary citizenship is elsewhere. It's not here. So don't stop standing. Recognize that, that as you're going through this persecution, you have to have an eternal perspective because if all you're thinking about is what's right in front of you, what's right around you, you're going to be tempted to give up and you possibly will give up. But if you keep eternity in view and you keep standing with other believers, you're going to be much more able through the power of Christ to be able to withstand that persecution. The attack of Satan is relentless. He continues to fire his darts at us. And he is constantly bombarding us with temptation and trying to get us to fall. And the job of us as Christians is to stand firm. Ephesians 6, let me just remind you of this passage that we've studied probably a couple months ago now. Ephesians 6, 11-14. Put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand firm. So why do we put on the full armor of God? So that we can stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and powers and world forces of darkness and spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God. Why? So that you'll be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, he says, having gird your loins with truth and so on. So all of the armor of God that we put on as we're standing up in the the sake of battle is not to defeat the enemy. Our job is not to eliminate the demons and get Satan to, to fall. It's to hold our ground. To stand up with one another and to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore. As a Christian, our job is not to annihilate Satan. It's to hold our ground. Can you do that with your own strength? You can only do it with the strength that God supplies. That's why we put on the full armor of God. And I would suggest to you, you can only do it with the strength that God supplies through other believers who are doing the same thing. That as you stand together, you stand more firmly than you can alone. Suffering is a gift from God to believers who are willing to do so for the sake of Christ. And if God has given you that kind of suffering, it is a gift. You recognize that He's on your side and he is, he is all for you. He's wanting you to win. Because when you win, He wins. It brings glory to His name when our church stands against persecution. We need to live as citizens of heaven by pursuing greater unity and being willing to stand firm in the face of persecution. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that You have granted to us faith in You. It's good for me to be reminded that that my faith does not come from myself. It comes from You. And so I have no reason to boast. Our church has no reason to boast in our standing before You. We, we boast only in the cross, Jesus Christ. 
So I'm thankful for that reminder. But I'm also thankful for the reminder that the suffering is also a gift from You. We can see adverse circumstances and particularly persecution from unbelievers as punishment. So I'm thankful for how Your Word clarifies for us that it is actually a gift that's granted to us to suffer for Your sake. And I pray that we would happily stand firm as Christians, that we would hold our ground against the wiles of the devil that is that he is constantly seeking to get us to fall. And You are constantly holding us up. Lord, continue to do so. Use other believers in this church to hold us up through their prayers, through their encouragement, through their challenging of us as we start to go down paths of sin. Thankful for believers who challenge us, challenge us and say, is that really what God wants you to do? Is that really pleasing to God? Lord, help us to be that kind of person for others. May we be willing to to endure suffering and reproach for the sake of Christ. Sometimes our greatest fear is from people that we know the most. People in this church. We are fearful of 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 warning them when they're in sin. Lord, help us to do that. Help us also to be willing to accept warnings from other believers, recognizing that their goal is the same as ours, to, to get us to stand firm as a church. Help us to grow in unity. Lord, we, we pray for Your help here because we know that we can't do it apart from Your Spirit, apart from Your power, apart from Your providential working in our lives. So we beg for Your grace. In Jesus' name.